Here at the TalkHouse Podcast, we want to hear from you, about you, our listeners. Go to bit.ly slash TalkHouse survey to fill out a two-minute survey. To make it worth your while, we'll be giving away a Fender Mahogany acoustic guitar, a 9LP prize pack courtesy of the folks at Secretly Group and Dead Oceans, a custom Levi's jean jacket, and four $25 Amazon gift cards to lucky participants. That link again is bit.ly slash TalkHouse survey. Hey, this is Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the TalkHouse podcast. Today I'm joined by... Hi, I'm Amy Rose Spiegel, TalkHouse music editor-in-chief. Today's conversation took place at McNally Jackson in Soho and features the one and only Cozy Fanny Tootie in conversation with Lenny Kay of the Patti Smith Group. Lenny interviewed Cozy about her new book, which is a memoir called Art, Sex, Music. In it, she details her time coming up in the late 70s with Robin Gristle and her approach toward her life as her art and her art as her life. She discusses her time in Throbbing Gristle and in Chris and Cozy with Chris Carter and the art shows that she put on around London in the late 70s. Very transgressive stuff. She was part of Coombe Transmissions. She came down from Hull in the north. You can hear her accent. It's fantastic. She came down to London, met up with Genesis Peorage and the rest of their gang. They were really pushing boundaries, which listeners you'll hear in the excerpt that precedes this talk. Amy Rose, she was an artist working in multiple media. Yes, so she was a visual artist and that drew on her time in the sex industry as a stripper, a model, and a performer. So her shows often included nudity at a time when that was really salacious and not really otherwise done. And you'll hear in the talk about how that was met by the media and what they had to say about it and how it really added to the show as a living exhibition. Cozy tells a fantastic story in the book about how she was a huge fan of Patti Smith's Because the Night. She would put it on during her strip club shifts and sometimes get so into it that she forgot to strip. Yeah, I think Lenny Kay was equal parts flattered and like, oh, then it wasn't doing its job <laughs> in this talk, which is really lovely. His questions for her are really great. And of course, Lenny Kay, a legend in his own right, he was a founding member of Patti Smith Group. He created the seminal anthology of 60s garage rock called Nuggets. He wrote You Call It Madness, the sensuous song of the croon, and co-wrote Waylon, an autobiography with Waylon Jennings. Right, he's an author as well. They share a publisher. And when Cozy asked him if he'd be interested in interviewing her, he said he would love to. And he told me after that's because he'd followed Throbbing Gristle throughout the 70s and 80s. Right. So really a perfect person to walk us through her life and her art. And here's that event in its entirety. I'll, I'm going to do a short reading first before me and Nanny talk together. I was uh, I returned from doing a modeling shoot in Greece back to London, ready to set up the ICA exhibition. So this is a diary quote on the 16th of October, 1976. Jen was a little cold at first, upset me. Seems like the show has caused trouble. He only knew yesterday that it was definitely on. It's been in the papers, but still the ICA have decided to go ahead, even when threatened by the Arts Council of Great Britain with a reduction in their grant. It doesn't feel real to me. It feel, I feel in a dream. Greece this time last night, and ICA chaos now. My arrival back to Beck Road was not the homecoming I'd expected or wanted. 
Jen was pissed off with me that my magazine works, or as he put it, your fucking magazines, had caused so much trouble and nearly robbed him of the exhibition. Such an unwelcoming return was depressing and hypocritical, considering we'd both agreed about the show taking its title from my magazine work, which had inspired and formed the core of the show. Anyway, the invites and posters stating that were all printed, so it was too late. The exhibition was opening on the 19th, but the private view was on the 18th, and despite me, Jen and Chris having already framed some works and done the Tampax sculpture boxes, there was still so much work to do. I really needed to sleep, but Jen blamed me for the ICA chaos and made me feel so guilty that despite having travelled back overnight, I went to the studio to work on mounting and framing the photographic documentation of the Kiel and Milan Coombe actions. I'd spent months printing the Coombe photographs in readiness for the exhibition, and Chris had managed to get the frames cheap through his father's glass shop. The budget from the ICA was pretty minimal, and Jen suggested that I be given just £50 for the framing of my magazines and to pay for the rest myself. The original quote for framing I'd got was for £500, which was crazy expensive. So the ICA framed a few for me and I paid for the others myself. In the last week of September, Martello Street Studio became a framing workshop. Chris delivered all the glass and hardboard and cut it to size. All 41 framed magazine actions and the photographic documentation of the Coombe actions of Milan and Kiel were assembled ready for installation at the ICA. It was all going so well and looked amazing. But then, after the troubles over my magazines and the intervention of both the Crown Commissioners, the owners of the ICA's lease, and the Arts Council of Great Britain, it was decided that my sexually explicit magazine works could not be shown on the main gallery walls for legal and what was described as diplomatic reasons. Not just that, but they would be housed in boxes and form part of a members-only exhibition in a separate room at the back of the main gallery and to be viewed on request and only by members of the ICA. I was told that this would enable the magazines to be included in the show and avoid any of the obscenity regulations that applied to public displays in the gallery itself. I always felt this was, intentional or not, like relegating the magazines to a place comparable to their original context, in a back room and under the counter situation like a Soho sex shop. Sex shop to art gallery to back room. All it needed was a dusty velvet curtain in the doorway. While the ICA staff concentrated on making the boxes for my frame magazines, we set to work installing everything in the main gallery. The large orange and blue wooden pyramid, the shower of chains from Milan, the perspex box of tampons and buzzing flies that was shown at the Paris Biennale, and the photo documentation of Coombe actions and related press on the walls. Then we positioned display cases containing relics from Coombe actions, assorted objects and clothing, including my bloodied tampons, which were used as raw material for many pieces, and which, unknown to us at that time, became the focus, alongside my magazine works, of the furore which descended upon us the very next day. We decided that the private view for the exhibition would not be like the usual polite wine-sipping art crowd gathering, as the exhibition was both a farewell retrospective of Coombe and the official launch of our new project, Robin Gristle, we would make the private view a special evening to shake things up a bit. We'd arrange for the punk band LSD, a.k.a. Chelsea, to play as support to TG, 
booked a stripper called Shelley through my friend's stripping agency and a beautiful, tall, intimidating transvestite bodyguard called Java. Well, it was indeed a very special night that kicked off big time. It turned out to be a good decision to keep my magazines in the back room for the private view. They needed to be out of harm's way. Having bump-started our van and loaded up all the TG equipment, we arrived at the ICA around two o'clock in the afternoon. We set everything up and made sure the gear was working. Our friends all turned up to help and Ted Little, then the director of the ICA, was totally supportive despite all the hassle and pressure he'd had about the show. The press were already buzzing around as we prepared for the party. LSD didn't get there until 3.30 and spent two hours doing the sound check, then blew the monitor speakers. As the party started at 6, time was getting tight and we now had to repair the monitors. The tech people sorted it out and pretty quick and Chris took the opportunity to have a last check of our gear before we started our set. Something was amiss. Someone had purposely fucked with our equipment by jamming a screwdriver into the PA amp. It would have ruined the gig. Chris removed it and the sabotage was thwarted. When we opened the doors to the main gallery, people flooded in and the place was heaving. We were to play first as most of our equipment, being self-built by Chris, was best left set up and undisturbed once it was all working. We took up our positions, Chris on rhythms, synths and machines, me on raver lead guitar and effects, Jen on vocals, violin and Rickenbacker bass guitar and Sleazy using his tapes. I wore my leather jacket, hung open with nothing underneath. I had Sleazy apply his casualty makeup to my boobs so it appeared to be gashed open and bloody. And during the performance, I took my jacket off. Jen had the front of his hair shaved into an inverted V, Peter Gabriel style, and had a bottle of Sleazy's fake blood to hand and proceeded to pour it into his mouth as he sang, spitting it out as he screamed (coughs) apocalyptic lyrics into the mic. The set began slowly building intently into very friendly The Moors Murderer's song, We Hate You, Little Girls, Factory, Slugbait, Deadhead, and finally letting rip No Holds Barred with Zyklon B Zombie. Throbbing Gristle official launch was complete, and we were pleased with what we did. I didn't know or care what the audience thought. Next up was Shelley, the stripper, who enthusiastically took to the stage for her striptease, playing to the audience and ending up rolling on the floor naked in the spilt fake blood left from TG's set. People loved it. LSD then took over from Shelley and thrashed out a punk set to the cheers of their friends, including pre-Banshee's Susie Sue. Their crowd were all garbed in punk outfits and, as expected, were rather standoffish about the art. There was a lot of alcohol consumed that night, including Jen, who liked a good tot of whiskey prior to performing. The bar had been very busy, the evidence of which was all over the floor of the gallery. We'd put our equipment to one side and as far away as we could from the main hub of party people and went to join our friends. We were no strangers to violence or trouble, so we thought nothing of the agitated atmosphere. I was glad to see Kipper Kid Brian. I always had such fun times with him. He was very drunk when he walked up to me and Jen, accompanied by Ian Hinchcliffe, who was also drunk as a skunk. By this time, Ian had gained a reputation for his spontaneous, aggressive, verbal and physically violent outbursts, either against property, himself or others. He had issues with Jen. Ian hated pretension and had previously squirted Jen in the eye with washing up liquid. As he approached, I could see blood on his mouth. 
He was in the throes of his glass-eating trick. I don't know who threw the first punch at Jen, but the language was vitriolic. All hell let loose as fists, feet, bottles and glasses flew in all directions and they all end up in, ended up in a writhing heap on the floor. People stepped back, some left. Ted Little tried to intervene and in the tangled web of fury got kicked in the ball so hard he had to be taken to hospital. Jen sustained a suspected broken finger and we ended the evening with a visit to Charing Cross A&E de department. The doctors were immediately attentive to Jen's bloody face, fearing serious injury, only to discover the blood was fake. They became rather dismissive about his finger, which turned out not to be broken. When me and Jen returned to the ICA, we all drove back to Martello Street, unpacked all the gear, carried it down the narrow basement steps into our studio, locked up the van and trudged across London Fields back home to Beck Road. We thought that the previous night's dramas would be the end of it, but we were in for a rough ride. The show opened officially the next day, Tuesday the 19th of October, and that's when the eruption of press outrage began. Me and Sleazy were due to perform together at the IC on Wednesday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. We decided on a kind of demonstration of casualty makeup, in part to disappoint the press who were expecting a nude sex action and thereby remaining true to our Coombe slogan, Coombe Guarantee Disappointment. When we arrived at the IC on Wednesday for the one o'clock action, the audience, including artists and a heavy contingent of the press, were already in place. We only did the one performance. 20th of October 1976. It's fucking ridiculous today at the ICA. So many reporters and so aggressive. Can't do any more performances now, it's impossible. They'd all be there again. Three pictures were broken and I reckon there'll be none left by next Tuesday. The reporters chased me through the gallery and nearly broke the door down. They punched Chris and called him a cunt. We had to be sneaked out the back way and went off to have lunch. The explosive media response to the exhibition was totally unexpected, but ironically fed well into our show, which was primarily based on how Coombe was perceived by others and how our image was at times distorted. What a gift, what a spontaneous collaborative work, forming itself via the media day after day after day. We seized on the new material and me and Chris went to the ICH day to collect the press cuttings, photocopy them and pin them to the wall of the gallery alongside the existing documentation. What had set out to be a retrospective exhibition had been transformed into an evolving show that was increasing in size as the press fed their own hysteria. It was mine and Chris's closeness during the harassment and intense stress of the ICA that cemented our relationship. The ICA was pivotal in determining all our futures. It proved to be not only the end of Coombe and the beginning of Throbbing Gristle, but the beginning of the end of my relationship with Jen as Chris and I fell deeply in love, and also through chance meetings which led to Jen's pernicious liaisons with a girl called Sue Catwoman. It also caused the end of my relationship with my mother and father. Thank you. Well, that was fascinating, and your book is fascinating, and uh, incredible vision and window into a very uh, exciting time in the creative arts. Um, I think uh, you cover just about all of it in your title, Art, Sex, Music. Is that the order in which you uh, perceive it? Yeah, I think so. 
as, as I go through, like, from my childhood all the way through till it all started sort of connecting. Um, yeah, the art fairs, because I was always drawing as a child. And then music, my father's attempt to have me taught how to play the piano. And, um, and sex, of course. I um, connected with sex at quite an early age. <laughs> uh, on page 116, you state, my life is my art, my art is my life. Uh, I often feel that art is something that you use to distance yourself from your, yourself, uh, to kind of take it, uh, these inner contradictions and dilemmas and personal uh, conundrums and look at it. Uh, you write a song and it helps you understand the situation. Um, sometimes uh, if you hold these things that are removed, uh, it's like almost like you have a violent fantasy which you place on paper or in a movie or in a painting, and it might not be the life that, as an artist, you live yourself. You're dealing with the imagination. Um, could you describe why you chose to shorten the distance between your art and yourself and how you integrated, say, daily existence, the mundanities, with your immersion in your art? That's a complicated question, Lenny. <laughs> but yeah, I can understand where you're coming from. And I'd never thought of it in that way because I don't, my art and how I express myself is the opposite of that. But imagination does come into it as well. Because um, in terms of like the, um, the sounds I, I choose, they're, they're part of um, expressing the feelings that I'm trying to get across about what has happened to me or or friends of mine, or in the world, which is what um, uh, life as my art is all about. It's about my connection and my place in this world and the people that I come across and the people that I hear about and the troubles and um, the good and the worst of uh, sides of um, human beings as well, trying to make sense of it. So I, in that way, I'm not imagining anything when I'm expressing something, whether it's photography, music, or, or any form of art, or my actions, in, in fact. I'm exploring life as myself, rather than imagining a situation and then trying to um, create it for other people to then find an entry point into. I'm, I'm particularly thinking of uh, perhaps your... Uh you know, nude modeling, the sense yeah. that instead of using images of women um, of, uh, of a sexual nature, you placed yourself within that because you wanted to uh, experience it. Mm -hmm. In some ways, that's uh, creating an artistic distance from being one of the women who say is a pinup model. But on the other hand, uh, you're utilizing it as, as work within your art. Um, what made you decide to, say, cross the line between seeing an object and becoming the object? Uh, because I, I worked so closely when I, when I was collaging those images that um, I really started looking at the, um, at the location, the materials used, the objects that were presented there, and the faces of the people in the, in the photographs. And... For me, I, I've, I felt, for one thing, it would be great for me to be actually cutting around my own body 
that would feel good as as, a, as an artist that would feel good to have created that collage material myself and I felt some kind of hypocrisy at using another woman's mm-hmm. nude nude uh, modeling experience for my art when I could actually go through the whole experience myself and know what I was collaging and have a real life experience of having gone through that. How much of it played into your own fantasy, say, of exhibitionism, of performance art, uh, the testing of power relationship between, say, uh, those who would view your photographs in a non-artistic context, say, in a, you know, a, a men's magazine? Um, how much would it play into the power and control of uh, sexuality where as an object sometimes you are in the more dominant position of someone who's coming to view you. There's a lot of interplays here Mm. uh, within, you know, uh, sexuality. Uh, How much of it did you understand yourself through it? Well, you have to remember that back in the 70s came off the 60s sexual liberation, which was pretty full on. But the 70s, I think, really went up quite a few gears because <laughs> the rule book went out the window <laughs> completely. <laughs> so it was a um, cultural climate of, like, accessibility. And it, it, to me, it just seemed a natural progression that I could do that. I didn't think of power plays so much as my... My objective, which was to get in there to see how that material was um, made, what went into it, who was involved, what kind of people they were. That all fascinated me because also then it was illegal and it was it was really um, a seedy kind of um, place to be, uh, the, the whole sex industry then. Um, yeah, a couple of the guys I worked with were imprisoned for it, so... Um, when I when I was doing the work, what fascinated me most of all was was the gameplay because I w- I was aware of that. I mean, hippies in the sixties did this whole mind trip and word games with each other, so you you kind of used to manipulation. You can see it a mile off, and I was in a as a model. I had to I could see what they were doing, and they didn't think I had to pretend that they thought I didn't know they were doing it to get what I wanted. I had to play the role of a model. So I think for the first time, I wasn't being myself so that I could actually explore myself in that situation and then come out of it with something. So it was part of art, it was part of my life, although that I was taking on a role to enable that, which was interesting for me. But I never thought of the... um, the consequences of um, or the objectivity of objectification of women, that kind of thing. I I was out there, you know, just doing my thing completely. And that's why I was so shocked when the ICA kicked off. (laughs) I just didn't know what was wrong with it. (laughs) You you, you say at one point in the book that... uh... You, you're not a victim of exploitation. You wanted to subvert and use it to create my own art. I wanted a purity in my own work. And that, to me, strikes parallels with such artists as Lou Reed, uh, Jim Carroll, Robert Maplethorpe. Um, did you have feel any affinity to that, the, the kind of uh, 
delving into the under depths that these artists went through to understand their art. Yeah, because I, I think it's not just understanding your art, it's understanding yourself. When you go that deep, you really sort of um, dig into who you are, you find out who you are, where your limits are as well, because there are limits. And when I, when I did that work, there were situations I was in where I was asked to do things that I really didn't want to do. And then I'd sort of like flip it and think, well, why don't I want to do it? Because I've never done it before. So how do I know I won't like it? <laughs> so I would do it and then make the decision afterwards. At least then I've experienced something whether I want to do it again or not. But it, it is pushing yourself right to the limit and, and that risk that is kind of exciting as well as a little bit scary mm -hmm. when, when you're in that, you know, in that zone. It's, uh, yeah, it's a bit frightening. It's a place where your art can surprise you. With, yeah, and, and you can surprise yourself as well sometimes, yeah. Um, you often speak in the book about having uh, a sense of freedom interpretation, uh, the cross-pollination of genre, I think you refer to it, um, as opposed to rigorous definitions. Uh, one of my guiding philosophies I got off the back of an album by Mayo and the Red Crayola uh, from uh, Texas, a kind of... Uh, I don't know, communal uh, group that got in a studio and banged away. But on the back of it, Mayo Thompson said, definitions define limit. And I've always felt that that's a, a very good uh, art, artistic credo. Uh, can you describe what this sense of possibility un unleashes within you as an artist? Well, that there are no boundaries, there are no definitions. Yeah, I, do, I don't even think about it. I've got, I've got to the point now where unless someone asks me something like that, it doesn't occur to me because I, I, it's not that I purposely go to do something and think, right, that's been done this way, let's try and turn it around do it another way. Uh, I don't connect with things that are already in existence because that's someone else's work. Uh, I'm, I'm talking from myself and... And what I create then is something new, hopefully. Because the sounds I use when I do music, specifically when I do music, are, are ne we never use presets. We, never, <laughs> we always mess with anything that we get hold of because um, for the simple fact that I wouldn't want to be doing a track and using a preset and then it comes on with a toilet roll advert, the same sound, <laughs> you know, because that's not a good place to be. <laughs> so um, I, I just really en enjoy finding new sounds and, and new ways of um, melding sounds and, and um, putting them in opposition, if you like, as well. And with the voice, you're not, not always using it as a voice, but just as a sound as well. Because sometimes I can't get something that, that expresses how I feel, so I have to get it through my own voice, externalise it, and then use that, you know, which is um, what I tend to do more and more lately. To, uh, to backpedal a little bit, early in the book you describe your family life, uh, which uh, seems very complex, especially with your father. <laughs> Without being uh, facile or simplistic or, uh, you know, 
elementary psychology. Did this color your relationship with uh, Jen when you you came together? Do you think there was a certain dynamic that was happening that you you know it seemed like it was a very fraught relationship? Yeah, it was, but it was a fraught time as well. I, I was home, <laughs> homeless, so um, and we'd connected way before. I, well, I'd been thrown out once and gone back, and then thrown out finally. Um, and I, I never sort of saw parallels because, you know, my, I came from a council estate, working-class family, um, and very straight. So all the people I mixed with before Jen and, and during and after were um, totally outside of that, you know. So I never, I never looked for any parallels between the two of them. Yeah, right in the book I see them now. But as you're going along, you don't, you know, because I had a, a lot of other people around me at the beginning um, that offset a lot of the stuff that was going on. How weird was it growing up in Hull and having uh, a commune, a theatrical commune, grow up that was so out of the ordinary? Well, it was in the centre of town. So it was well away from all the uh, hmm. <laughs> the ordinary people, if you like. They only came across us when they came to town to do their sort of Saturday weekend shopping and clubbing, and then we'd sort of meet them at the top of the street. Within uh, within a collective, you know, especially one that uh, bases itself on egalitarianism, mm -hmm. you know, when everybody has has a say, Jen uh, assumed a leadership and uh, a kind of uh, guru-esque role very quickly. Um, how, how did that work in practice? Uh, you know, did, did you feel that this was how it should be or did it start changing the dynamic within the group and moving it in different directions, which would ultimately become Throbbing Gristle? Um, well, what happened was that there are arguments and then... The coup membership fluctuated as people left and then new ones came in and then they left until there was just me and Jen left in Hull and we moved out to London and then Throbbing Gristle started. There, there was a moment in time where you seemed to consciously move your performance art from the gallery, probably after the prostitution show, into a realm of more popular art, i.e. music to have an actual band grow out of the creative shards that was uh, the, the Kuhn movement. Uh, Throbbing Gristle formed in September of 1975 and gave its first performance in July of 1976, the same year mm. that punk became a, a, a verb. Um, did you feel an embrace or an infinity with this new scene happening? Uh, did you feel like the mu music was moving toward you or rather you were moving toward music? How did it well, kind of well, coalesce? With the, within Coombe, we'd, we'd done sound anywhere. Um, some of the actions we did, we contact mic'd up, so, but it was very abstract. And um, also we did like what we call Coombe doodars, which were just like mayhem on the stage really. Whoever got hold of an instrument played it, which was pretty much the thing then back in the late sixties. But um, with TG, it's quite different, very very different, because we we had the technology at our um, fingertips with Chris, 
and the sounds that he brought into the studio um, really excited us and um, the possibilities of what we could do with that because he had um, the knowledge of how sound works and so on, not just creating them and building synthesizers. So it was very, very different approach. And by then a lot of the Coombe people had left anyway. There was just John Lacey who, once Chris joined, John left. Um, so it, it, it was... Um, yeah, it was it was very 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 different to Coombe because we and we weren't thinking of going into um, mainstream at all. We weren't going towards anything. Um, in fact, we we're going away from everything, and that was what we were aiming at. It was like something that wasn't a music that you could identify as music, and uh, definitely nowhere near punk. We weren't interested in punk because that was just like rock and roll to us, just in a very basic form. And um, and we'd been involved with it with McLaren and Sleazy had been involved with McLaren doing promo stuff for Sex Pistols, and we'd been involved with his nem McLaren's nemesis John Cravine with his other punk shop. There were two down the King's Road that were sort of fighting for territory, <laughs> both both with a boy band. So no, I didn't have a lot of respect for punk. <laughs> no. The 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 idea of being a cult band or one that consciously rejects, say, the mainstream and a pop band, for, for me, there's a certain, uh, I guess, not predictability, but a, a sense of insularity uh, where you, you can be a cult band and have your own way and, and appeal to a very, spe you know, your specific audience. And then there's the other end where you have a popular art and appeal to a great swath of people. Uh, for me, the, the real trick has been to combine the two to keep your, your sense of confrontation and, and uh, strangeness and also sell a million records. It's, uh, you know, not, not easy. And it's not easy to do either of them, actually. No, it's no. very difficult to write a, a traditional single, a hit single, a great pop chant, and it's also hard to put together music that uh, is sometimes as as angular as early throbbing gristle performances. Was there any talk within the band that perhaps you could bridge these two uh, conflicting worlds no. and have that hit single? No. <laughs> <laughs> we joked. We joked about it that maybe United would be a hit single, but it wasn't. <laughs> but um, no, the first album we 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 never thought we'd even sell the seven hundred odd copies that we did of that. Um, for me, and I, I never had any ambition to be in in the charts or anything. I was more interested in doing something um, that just was very very different and 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 spoke for how I felt and about the things that were going on that were really important to me to discuss. And I knew the things that we were discussing would never, ever go in the charts and sell a million records. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the, the skill of doing, I mean, Chris was the one that really um, admires the ability to do um, a hit record and, and sell a million. Like his, his love of, of ABBA was all about that, you know. Um, how, how you do that, and Anietta, of course. But um, 
I don't think I or Sleazy or Chris really thought of ourselves as that kind of material. What about by the time you got to an album like uh, 20 Jazz Funk Greats, which is is actually quite personable given uh, <laughs> yeah, is, you know, the dissonance of uh, earlier stuff. Was that a move in a in a was kind of an organic move, or was it uh, or was it uh, something that created a, a sense of conflict within the within the band in terms of directions? It, it was one of those situations where once we started getting people that liked us and they bought us for what they thought we were, we would do something that was the opposite, and that was twenty jazz funk greats. So they'd think that they were going to get something like DOA or whatever, but no, they got this, this new album with <laughs> totally different stuff on. And also by then we'd, we'd moved over to Roland Gear and we'd started using different equipment as well. A lot of it was tongue-in-cheek and, um, and a lot of it was from when I'd started stripping by then. So I had quite a collection of 12-inch singles and things that I used to dance to that I used to pick, you know, Donna Summer and stuff like that. So, and we sort of did Throbbing Gristle versions of um, disco music <laughs> and Martin Denny. I, I must admit you brought a smile to my face when I discovered somewhere in the book that you enjoyed dancing to Because the Night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was... <laughs> Can you tell me what was going through your mind when that was happening? <laughs> I just think it was my, <laughs> I think I wrote, and it, it was the one time when I danced to that record that that was my, that was my dance because I just adored that single. And um, so, yeah, when I, I, I got a big enough floor space to throw myself about, I danced to that. <laughs> oh. Sometimes I forget to take my top off. I used to get into <laughs> it so much, I forgot to take my top off, yeah. And it, then it didn't work as we intended. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, they wanted more. <laughs> uh, you, you've been credited, uh, Throb and Gristle, with uh, kind of giving the name to a genre which is industrial. Um, how do you feel about how the, the legacy and the interpretation of this name continued on? Uh, I'm thinking, and I know I've never pronounced it right ever, Einstrzende. Neubauten. Neubauten. Ministry and, of course, Nine Inch Nails, uh, Skinny Puppy. There's so many groups that align themselves with this sense of, uh, uh, fact, you know, of, you know, factory uh, sound. Uh, how do you feel about your role with generating it and where it went to? I think with anything you do, once you release it, you've got to let it go. And then I'm just pleased that people um, took it up and did it their own way rather than trying to do TG because that, I mean, it's done. There's no point right trying to do, redo TG. And and also, it wasn't just about the sound because you got 20 jazz fun greats. Yeah. <laughs> you know, TG wasn't all sort of like mach machines and hammers. In fact, a lot of it wasn't. It was generated by us messing around with um, different gadgets and things that Chris had made and sampling at some point as well. So, um, yeah, it wasn't, in, it wasn't literally industrial music for sure, but people took it and made it their own. That's fair enough, you know. Some did a good job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great records. <laughs> Um, Throb and Gristle certainly seem to have a very uh, colorful inner life, one might say. 
Can you talk about uh, the lines of force, uh, the, how the different personalities melded into a group and what they contributed uh, in terms of, of the overall sense of, of, of a group? I think if you'd put all of us four in a room, you wouldn't have thought we would make a band together, basically. Because if you knew the history of, of us all, um, Sleazy and Chris went to private school. Um, Sleazy and Jen went to private school, sorry. Um, me and Chris went to, like, what you, I think what you call here, state school. So there was that binary thing going on straight away, the different mindsets completely. And um, and then there was the whole thing. Sleazy had um, been away to New York, um, then come back and joined, obviously, hypnosis. He was a photographer. But we all had a, a common interest in um, the more sleazy, that's why sleazy is called <laughs> sleazy, the more sleazy... Um, side of the world and I think that's what brought us together and be, and we were all very very strong personalities too um so once we got together we we had to put, put a rule of um like democratic vote otherwise nothing I don't think anything would have got done so we just majority um vote it gets done or not depending on what it is you know and um yeah, there were arguments, lots of arguments, but I was used to it from Coombe. <laughs> <laughs> Did, uh, it, it seemed like uh, Jen had his own ideas on how the group, and he seemed to be moving away from the group probably at the moment where you were making your greatest impact. Um, did you feel like Throbbing Gristle had a future after that or when the group kind of sharded in uh, 81 or so? What, what did you had you run your course? I think we'd run our course by 1979 when I left. But um, there was still kind of an unfinished business, if you like, sound-wise, definitely. And there's always like um, a sort of tail-off period with anything like that. It doesn't very rarely just stops what well, it did second time round, but it, very rarely. Um, so there was still stuff to do, and I, and I think there were agendas going on on bo in both camps at that point where certain things wanted to be finished off and tied off before we all sort of went our own way. Um, yeah, it was a very, very, very difficult time, those last few years, very difficult. Because Sleazy was still... He was still very young then, Sleazy, and he was, um, he was definitely happy to see me go. <laughs> uh, in your post-throbbing gristle uh, life, you, you've made uh, music with Chris Carter uh, as Chris and Cozy, and uh, in a way, the music seems more embracing and welcoming uh, than throbbing gristle. Uh, is that emblematic of your relationship with him? Uh, that that if there's less uh, dissension. Um, I might not be, but uh, you yeah, know, that's your Yeah, I think it was just a celebratory. I mean, suddenly we were both free, and that sense of freedom came through in the music. Um, and there was a crossover period with Heartbeat. It was still quite TG-ish because we were doing, we were sampling a lot of things in LA during the last gigs with TG, ready for our first album. Um, so there was a crossover period, then trance, 
the trance album, which was sort of more ambient and something we just wanted to do and get out there. And I think that was the turning point and getting new equipment because all the other equipment had stayed at Martello Street, so we had to rebuild our own stuff again, build up a studio of our own. And then you had uh, Songs of Love and Lust in 1984, and uh, it almost seems, dare I say, hooky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's almost uh, like synth, po synth pop with some uh, unsettling undercurrents. Uh, it's not a million miles away from, you know, what New Order was getting into or uh, Yaz Yazoo or any of those. Uh, did you feel that you were moving in a more pop direction even if you had your initial sensibilities still intact? Uh, no, because like you said, there was that undercurrent. It's what you were saying. You, you write a song, but it still keeps some integrity in because it's about what you want to discuss, but you, you, um, you present it in a way that's enjoyable and quite joyous, you know. Um, and that's what we did with our, with our songs. They're about cocaine addiction, AIDS, everything, all sorts of things going on about whether this is an illusion. One of the track is illusion. A friend of ours, a scientist, was working on um, what we see is not, because uh, we all know if anyone's taken acid, you can see a lot more than what we see just now. And it was about all that. He was doing experiments about that, how to short-circuit the brain's view through the eye. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of things going on like that with our music, although it was accessible in those terms. But it also it was kind of like pre-Yazoo and everybody as well. So um, by the time all that came on, we moved on to something else. Plus you had new, the, the whole sense of digital instruments was first really being invented then. So yeah. you had a, a new palette of sound. Yeah, we did, yeah. And um, we'd go out and um, record samples like um, in uh, game arcades, that kind of thing, anywhere really, then bring them back and, and mess with them, make them into rhythms and stuff, melodies. My, one of my favorite uh, works of yours from uh, that time is uh, Time to Tell from... Uh, oh, yeah. Just give me a little background just as a fan, <laughs> how that happened. Um, well, it was... Um, I was doing some of my last actions in, um, in Brighton and I wanted um, an audio soundtrack to do them with. And so... I just put that together before we did it. It was one of those things where you said, oh, I'll just put a soundtrack together. And it just happened as quick as that, really. I wanted something that didn't state anything or punctuate anything and just allowed me to do my action and emerge in different ways quite quite freely. So it's that's why it's so laid back. First thought, best thought. Yeah. Um, the long-anticipated uh, throbbing gristle reunion of the early part of this uh, millennium uh, seems to have uh, ran into uh, a ground, I guess would be the word. Um, could you describe what it was like to come back together and then apart and, uh, and how you view the band's canon today as a overall? It's well, about when four we, questions there. Yeah, there is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we, when we regrouped, it was, it, it was kind of in stages because the TG24 came out and we had the exhibition and then it was put forward that would we do a gig together. And um, it just gradually got accepted that, that we would regroup. 
and we got in the studio at Mute and it was just like riding a bike. It was quite scary for all of us to sort of look around and go, whoa, it's still there, no matter what's gone on in between, during and since, it's all still there. But um, I think we were on we were on a different page as far as and what we wanted to do musically um, with Jen. He wasn't, he wasn't quite on the same page as us at, at that point. So it, that was where the difficulty was, really. But, um, and then you, you realise that when you go out there and you do... Because people expect, you know, to hear Persuasion, Something Came Over Me, Discipline, all those classic TG songs, which became classics, but, you know, you no idea at the time. <laughs> so... Um, and going out on stage and doing those, he wasn't. He said he wasn't comfortable doing that because he wasn't that person anymore. So, um, but we couldn't do anything else. So that was what we had to do. And and he did. He was a good showman. He did a good job. And it was incredibly um, touching, actually, the reaction of the audience when we did play those tracks. And it, it was nice to reconnect with them, um, like we were talking earlier when you can look black and almost from the outside, you can look in and see them and hear them in a quite different way. And I did actually enjoy doing those. And then the more experimental... We sort of satisfied ourselves doing the experimental stuff in the studio when Sleazy had come over from Thailand and then integrate some of that because we did the new album. So um, part two, which was, which was interesting to do as well. Are you surprised that such an uncomprom- uncompromising band as yourselves have made such an impact? Had, could you have dreamed this uh, and that, that your sound would actually provide a soundtrack for what would come later? I think, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised by anything <laughs> that gets accepted or, or liked, really. Um, it's, it's pleasing in one way, but I don't expect it. And um, I don't do it for that reason. So, yeah, I am surprised that it's had the impact it's had, um, considering when I listen to it now. When I listen to it now, I can understand it. When I did it then, I didn't understand why people liked it because it was like, um, it was really full on. It was like um, an exorcism on stage at times. It was really draining. And it was second time round. It was very much like that because all four of us, and the, when we all come together like that, it's quite a, an intense moment and it was all the way through, on and off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you, you mentioned when you look back on something, you know, you can almost see it as a whole. I know we've just uh, finished uh, a year or so uh, celebrating uh, horses and for me playing it, uh, I see connections within it. I see, I see intuitions that we were only dimly aware of at the time and how a narrative arc develops in a way that even makes me look at it as something apart from myself. Uh, what did you learn about yourself in the writing of this book and seeing your life as a continuum? I think I'm still assimilating that because <laughs> it was such a long, intense process and um, kind of surprising in parts and then not. Um, 
like you were saying, what connects one thing with another? And that can be something very small or it can be years apart, you know, like you were saying with horses. It takes that length of time for you to kind of realise where you are, who you were then. Or I can't say I never recognised myself. I recognised myself all the way through the book as I was writing it. I never lost touch with myself throughout my life. And I think that's the one thing I learned about writing it, is that I do, I do know myself. And, and where is this self going to in the future? I don't know. That's the best bit, isn't it? <laughs> here, that you, you never know. <laughs> That's so great. Shall we do some questions? Um, hi. Have you um, always kept a diary? And is that how you wrote your book, from the diary? I kept a diary from the age of about 14, was the, first, the one I found in digging through on my archive and my personal cases of things. That was a proper first diary that I found. Um, before that, I'd been writing letters to people, a pen pal I had from school very early on. So I was, I was kind of into that, writing about my daily life and things like that to a German girl of all people. So, um, But after that, yeah, I kept diaries. There was a small hiatus, um, but I still wrote, but not daily. But I kept... I, I do, but just in the form of um, when I'm writing about what I've been doing to my friend, then I'll turn that into my diary page <laughs> because I, otherwise I'm just going to repeat. So that's quite, um, that, that's quite useful. I've got a very close friend in L.A. that I write to nearly every day. So I have a question about um, who, whose idea was it and how did it formulate with uh, the genetic terrorists? It was a one-off album. It was a bootleg, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was on Wax Tracks. No. Yeah, it was Genetic you... Terrorist album. No, 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 no. Uh, the White Stains album. Oh, yeah, TGT. TGT, that's what I meant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a, just a one-off thing we did with a friend of ours called Brian Lustmord. Brian Williams of Lustmord. You were Sadie Tesla, I imagine. Yes, I oh, was. Okay. I figured. Very much so. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, when you were talking before about some of the uh, creative process when the four of you would, um, I guess you said that you decided on a, on a democratic voting kind of way to maybe um, kill off bad ideas or ideas that you didn't agree upon or anything. Um, through that process, were there things ever that were just totally off limits that you uh, individually or as a group decided no, that was just in such bad taste or that was just be totally... Um, not appropriate that you felt was not uh, something that you wanted to present or was it just no holds barred and you just wanted to do the most extreme um, destruction of culture as you described before? Makes me sound like a terrorist. Um, <laughs> no, we weren't into destroying everything and, and not everything was about, I mean, United's about, it's a love song. So... Um, there wasn't, there was no, nothing was off limits, but I, I think we all of us had some sense of integrity within us that short-circuited that anyway. It would never arise. I don't know what, what that would be because we never got to that point. The issues we dealt with were ones that interested us or that were um, 
that were in the news or we felt should be discussed. Do you remember the very first song or, or a performer who struck a chord with you as a child or as a teenager, first piece of music you heard that you remember? As a teenager? I think it would be Jimi Hendrix, without a doubt. I think that's the first one. What is Purple Haze, all those? You know, I mean, it's just something... Because <laughs> I, 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 luckily I got to see him at a young age as well, so that sort of, like, cemented it, I think. I was going to... I, I saw a lot of 60s bands then, um, just straight bands, and then Jimi Hendrix turned up, and that was something else completely. Is there anyone contemporary that you're excited about? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the same way. <laughs> Hi. Uh, one thing that you spoke about when you started Chris and Cozy was leaving um, TG and being free. And I, I, I personally equate freedom with love. And I think that that's obviously a, a great base for what Chris and Cozy has produced. Um, so it's a part one and part two. Part one is what did that feel like? And then part two is how did that pour into or, or where did October Love Song, you know, come from? Um, it came from the ICA. Um, literally going up the escalator, the tube station on our, me and Chris on our way to the ICA to pick up the press cuttings. And that was the first line, you took my hand on the stair, and it was the stairs of the escalator. And um, and you just, you said we could be lovers, you just had to say the word. And um, and it was just as simple as that. So when I, when I, when we were way after, it was after I'd, I'd had our son, and we were recording October Love Song, which we didn't know it was that then. And I was, um, in the bedroom, as you do, is the vocal booth. <laughs> and Chris was in the spare bedroom of the studio recording. And we'd laid down some music. And he said, just do any lyrics to this. And um, I just started, I didn't know what to sing. And I just started talking about how I felt when the first time that we decided to be lovers. And that's where it came from. And then I had to go and write them all down quick so that I could remember what they were. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Um, hi, I think that um, you're one of the really great guitarists, um, and I, I'm wondering what it is about. Why did you Why did you pick up the guitar, and what it is about the guitar playing the guitar that's kept you interested? Well, at first, I didn't want to play it because uh, um, my friend Les was a fantastic guitarist. Um, he plays a mandolin, everything is is. Is really, really skilled. And like when we were teenagers, I always used to go around his house and he'd be playing guitar. But it, it was it was just too complicated for me. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's uh, trying to teach me chords and I'm so impatient, so impatient I can't even do yoga because it just, it's just like, when do we get on to the next movement? Um, so, And I'm thinking the way I am that I want to, when I hear a sound in my head and I want to get it out, the right sound by the time I've arranged my fingers and then figured out that if I do this the idea is gone so it just became like um an obstacle for me to try and learn um an instrument rather than just use it as a, um as a tool for making sound 
And it was more exciting as well for me. Um, so, yeah, we got um, a cheap guitar from Woolworths at the time. It was still around uh, because I was only going to smash it about, so it, I didn't want an expensive one. And um, went and bought some effects pedals and tested some out just to get the worst sound possible <laughs> and, uh, that excited me. And then, yeah, I'll have that one. And then take it back to the studio and, and Chris had built gadgets like he built the gristalizers for us all. Yeah. Hi. Um, I've always wanted to know about your experience dancing in the Sylvester video for <laughs> You Make Me Feel. Yeah. How that came to be and what it was like. Well, that... Um, my um, stripping agency, they got, they got the call. for They wanted dancers. And it was a um, gay club in the West End of London. And that he'd chosen to do his video because all the guys there walked around in white satin shorts and nothing else, just like a you know just a little tray for the drinks. Um, but they brought girls in as well for the dance. Some came from the um, what we call the Pineapple Dance Centre, which is a dance centre in London, and some came from my agency, me and two other girls. Um, and we were kind of like freeform dancers, whereas. The others were like two, three, four, up, arm, down, like, and all like this. And we were like, I was just stood there going, oh, fucking hell. You know, dancing to this really, because that song is great, make me feel mighty real. I mean, I did used to dance to it anyway. But um, he was, yeah, it was a really, really long day because he was in the dressing room getting all this thing ready and everything and want, wanting only the boys in the white shorts but being told that they had to have some girls as well. So, um, yeah, I managed to get in there and and get the white shorts. So I used them for stripping afterwards as well and for a pattern to make some more. <laughs> Finding a throbbing gristle as a band that has, I would say, a lot of qualities that could fit into a movie, a specific movie. If you would make a movie with somebody, who would be the director that you would pick up? <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd have to be Gaspar Noe, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He thinks on the same lines as me, yeah. Why don't we give our guests a huge hand first, and then I'll tell you what to do. Thank you. Life of Cozy Fanny Tootie as directed by Gaspar Noé is most certainly something I would like to see. Same here, and in the meantime, we can do a little cross-referencing with the Gaspar Noé episode of the TalkHouse podcast to see how, as she says, they think along the same lines. They certainly do. That was Noé in conversation with Abel Ferrara. Quite the episode. Now, listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, definitely check out our conversation between Genesis P. Orridge and Laura Jane Grace. Genesis P. Orridge, of course... Longtime collaborator with Cozy Fanny Tootie in Throbbing Gristle, Coom Transmissions, and beyond. Right, Genesis has a lot of great stories about their Throbbing Gristle days as well, and I think it's a nice companion piece to this one, for sure. We want to say a few special thanks in this episode 
Thank you to Billy and Javier at McNally Jackson who hosted this event and put it on. It was so fantastic. Thank you to Becky Kramer with Faber and Faber. And thank you to our engineer and co-producer, Mark Yoshizumi, for recording the event and co-producing today's episode. Amy Rose, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Elia. Till next time.